0: Children are dismissed back to Praise Factory, and uh, we will um, turn in our Bibles to the book of Romans this morning. If you turn there, we're going to be reading through chapter 4, and then we will will pray and, and see how it is that our sense of blessedness, our sense of connection to the gospel ought to inform the way that we look at the world specifically the people of the world. Paul says this in Romans chapter four, starting in verse one. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness now to the one who works his wages are not counted as a gift but as his due and to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly his faith is counted as righteousness without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith He believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us, who believe in him who raised from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Let's pray. Father, we turn to your word now. We We have gathered, we have greeted one another. We have sung your praises and we have given of what you've entrusted to us, For the work of your kingdom we pray lord that by your grace you would now speak to us and teach us from your word i pray that you would help us to follow in the train of of thought of what paul is teaching us here what he has written by the power of your spirit and what you have entrusted to the church through your word, that we might grow more and more into the image of Christ. Father, as we come to your word, I pray that we would understand that the gospel is good news, that it is news that righteousness does not need to be earned by us, one, because that is impossible, but second, because Christ has earned it for us. And that that is good news to be received by faith. I pray, then, that we would understand how this blessing teaches us to relate to others. And how it teaches us to be humble. And how it teaches us to look at our own hearts, Lord. I pray that we would never lose our sense of gratitude. That we would never lose our sense of humility before you. And that we would feel the joy of knowing you and that we would be joyous as we seek to share it with others. We pray this, Lord, in Jesus' precious name. Amen. It's a common cultural belief that we, uh, and this is believed by people inside of the church and outside of the church, uh, that we, the church, are engaged in a morality war. Uh, And in some senses this is true. Uh, Christians have a king. We worship uh, one who will come to reign and he has a law and a plan and a way. And that king, is going to remake the world in his image one day. As believers, we desire to see people live in a way that brings glory to God and that lives out the righteousness that God has created us for. The problem that I believe we encounter many times is that that people will then see this insistence that the world be a particular way as a kind of impatience with the world, a uh, lack of love for others, a forcing of a way of thinking onto people. I think in some sense this can be true. Our desire to see a different world can make us impatient or even judgmental with people who don't share our view of the world. As believers, we need to remember that this is a key piece of our mission. As ambassadors into the world, we need to remember that the mission of the Lord Jesus was to share the surprising news about the righteousness of God and to call people to repentance. For the Christian, to be dissatisfied with the world, and to be angry with people because of the way they live is to fail to understand that an ambassador goes into the world, goes to someone who is not part of his or her own nation, and then says, this is why you should make a deal or an agreement with us. The ambassador goes to convince, to plead, to change the heart and mind, and so, The mission of the Christian is to share the surprising news about the righteousness of God. If you recall, Romans 1 through 3 teach that the righteousness of God has been established in two ways. One, by the law, which demonstrates the standard that God expects all human beings to live by, the standard that God judges human beings by, and the law teaches all people they have sinned. And to use language from later in Romans, they have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But the good news of the gospel, which begins in chapter 3, verse 21, is this that now the righteousness of God has been established apart from the law, that God sent Jesus to live a perfect life and to take the burden of our sins upon himself to take the penalty of sins upon himself on the cross. He, having lived a perfectly righteous life, was unjustly convicted of our sins and the sins were poured out on him. He absorbed them and took them for us so that we would not need to take them ourselves. And he was raised from the dead to prove that he was holy and righteous. His life was given to him that we might be united with him and have life ourselves. He was risen, the scripture says, or he was raised for our justification. He was delivered for our trespasses. Our mission is to share with the world that though we have not lived in the way that God has called us to, God is reaching to us and has solved the problem and is offering righteousness to anyone who will acknowledge their lack of it and ask to receive it. And we're to call people to experience this news with joy as we experience it ourselves. The mission is to know the good news about Jesus and to make it known. The good news is this, that the gospel is for sinners, and we are all sinners. Jesus was careful to point this out at a particular point in his ministry. A uh, particularly righteous man, You can, if you want to look at this account as I, as I walk through it, in Luke chapter 7, you can flip over there. A particularly righteous man, a Pharisee, somebody who we would have thought it was, a, was a good theologian if, if they were in the world today and we were their contemporaries. Uh, this, this Pharisee invites Jesus to come to his house. So a righteous man invites a righteous teacher to eat with him and Jesus goes and he reclines at the table. The reason they recline at table is because their tables weren't our table height. They didn't sit at them in chairs. They would actually have a low table and they lay on the ground. And so Jesus goes there and while he's reclined at the table, a woman of the city who was a sinner, she heard that Jesus was there at the Pharisee's house, and so she brings this flask of, of, of perfume that she's got, and she stands behind him at his feet. Right now, we can understand why it doesn't create uh, an incredible buzz, right? That, that somebody's in the house, right? If, if somebody came into your house, and they were like rooting around under the table trying to pour something on somebody's feet, you would notice it. But since their, their legs are all pointed away from the table, right? It's, it's easy to expect that somebody could kind of slip in. They didn't have doors and alarms and cameras and all the stuff that we got today. So she just kind of zips into the house, finds Jesus, and she begins to pour this ointment on the feet. Everybody starts smelling it. You know when somebody opens an orange in a room and you're just like, you smell it. It just like zips through the room. Um, they, they, they smell this, and they observe, and they notice. And, and the Pharisee, this, this man, Simon, who had invited Jesus, sees what's going on, and he thinks if Jesus were a prophet, right? What he's saying, he's, he's leveraging a charge against Jesus in his mind now. He says, if he were truly a righteous man of God, he would know what this woman is like. He'd know who and what sort of woman this is. She is a sinner, i wish i knew exactly how jesus divine ability that he exercises here works right as a former comic book reader it's like is this like telepathy or does he like receive a message from the holy spirit like how does he know what he knows next i don't know it's not really important but i it's one of those things i want to know i don't think i'll ever know i'll ask someday it'll be like question number four thousand on my list of like stuff that i'm like hey hey fill me in on this Jesus answering said to him, he thinks this in his brain, right? He he says it to himself. I don't know if that means out loud, but he says to himself, if he knew if he were a prophet, he wouldn't let this be happening, he'd say, away from me, you rotten, horrible, terrible, disgusting woman. That's what he would say. Then Jesus answers him. How awkward would that be, right? You had a guest in your house and you were thinking, man, I wish they wouldn't sit back on their chair like that. You know, I wish they'd use a coaster. I wish they'd clean up their garbage and throw it away. I wish they would. I wish they would. And then they were like, oh, by the way, here's the reasons why I didn't do all that stuff. You'd be like, Ugh, right? He says, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered it and he said, he, 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 he begins to teach. He's going to correct his thinking on this matter. Jesus is going to tell him a story to relate something that he should have known from the Old Testament. That, that he could have built out of the materials that he had been entrusted with the, the very things that he had studied in order to become a Pharisee. The Pharisees were able to recite long and elaborate passages from the Old Testament. It said that they, that they would memorize the laws and that they would, would develop all kinds of traditions and ways of keeping all those laws. But this is what Jesus is going to point out in parable form, and we'll come back to this in a moment, that the Old Testament should have taught this man that abraham and that all people are saved by grace and not by being righteousness not by being righteous not by being perfect so this is what i want to do i want to i want to build from our text in romans 4 what this man should have known and then take a look at what jesus says okay look at look at romans chapter 4 verse 1 after describing the blessing that comes in jesus Because of Jesus' death on the cross, Paul moves to a question that some people might have asked. If if Jesus went to the cross to establish righteousness, and righteousness is by faith, what then of Abraham making a covenant with God, making a covenant that ruled our people, and then all that stuff, the Old Testament, you know, moving out of Egypt and and getting the law and building a tabernacle and the Ten Commandments and all that stuff, what about all that? Like, what's the good of being in Abraham and being a a Jew? What what advantage does Abraham have? Have Because Abraham was circumcised as a sign of his covenant with God. And therefore, to be descended from Abraham is a good thing and it brings a tremendous blessing. But Paul points this out. If Abraham obeyed God and was declared righteous because he obeyed, then he's got something to boast about. He can say, I was good. I earned this. And then righteousness is no longer by faith. Are there there two categories of people? If you look over what Paul says in these first six verses of Romans chapter 4, he says this in verse 3. What does the scripture say? So he is a good Bible teacher. He's a good theologian because he builds his theology out of the words of scripture and he doesn't just kind of draw them out of the sky and pull them and make stuff up right this is what the scriptures say Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness If you remember the story of Abraham, God came to Abraham and said, leave your country, go to another place, live there, and I will bless you and make your name great and bless the whole world through you. And Abraham was like, okay, cool, I'm going to go there. And God promised him in that land that he would have a child. His wife was barren. He had no kids. God God said, I'm going to give you all these lands. And then after a couple of different experiences, a couple of different uh, uh, tests that, that he went through as he doubted and and left the land, and then went back, he, he, he comes to God with an earnest heart, and says, God, you have, you have promised me, this is Genesis 15, that I will have an heir, but I think that this is the way he says it. Respectfully, I, I don't have an heir, and if I die, right, fast forward all the way to the end of the chapter, remember when we read it, Paul says that Abraham was as good as dead, right? You know, probably not something to say to somebody on their 100th birthday, right? Um, but but he, says, he says that his body was, was as good as dead. And I think that at the point when, when Abraham comes before God and says, I'm supposed to have an heir, but I don't have one, he's thinking like I could die any moment. Where is the fulfillment of the promise? He says to God, my, my servant is going to inherit all that I own. And so how will I know that I'll receive an heir and God responds to this earnest, honest question by asking Abraham to go outside of his tent to count all the stars in the sky, count them all. Look at the stars, Abraham. Can you imagine, right? There's no, no light pollution out there in the desert or in the land of, of Canaan where, where Abraham was. You know, when we moved here from uh, from New Jersey, where there are electric lights everywhere, to this development where we live now, where there's nothing, I was amazed. One night, I was like rolling the garbage can out, I think, and I looked up and I was like, "There are tons of stars here." And there's not really. We really we've got our visibility cut down by the fact that we live near the city of Salisbury, out where we live. But where Abraham was. He could see everything. He could see stars that were glittering orange and ones that were were blue, and he could probably see uh, different stars that were red, and he could see some blinking and some not, and and he could just see vast numbers. Imagine looking up and saying, okay, how exactly do I count this and starting and losing track and and finally thinking there are so many. How can there be that many stars? And God says, this is what your offspring are going to be like. You're going to have this many i will give them to you and abraham believed and at this point in genesis chapter 15 this is verse 6 if my memory serves me well the bible says and god credited or counted it to abraham as righteousness that that even though he was not righteous, even though he had done wrong things, God gave him the righteousness that he needed. He, he credited it to him. Like when you go to the bank and you have a check in your hand if you still get those things they're little rectangular pieces of paper, right? You know, And you, you sign a deposit slip and you hand it over to the cashier. The cashier prints out a receipt. Thank you, more paper, right? And you look and you make sure that there is a prior account balance and then the amount deposited. And then you look and hopefully, right, like your, your checking account balance or savings account balance has increased by the amount that you deposited. They credit it to your account. God counts to Abraham righteousness. He doesn't just say you're a little bit better than the rest of the humans. You're my chosen human and you're in a class above right? You're my guy, Abraham, and so you're like extra special. No, he says, I will treat you as if you are absolutely righteous. He didn't work for it, or he'd be owed it. That's what Paul says next, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due, right? If you have a job, let's just say you work at one of the most wonderful places in the entire world, Dunkin' Donuts, right? And you, you do your job, you show up, right, and you make the coffee, and you put the flavored cream in there, and you put the sugar in there, and you put the whatever, you know, and you hand out the stuff, and you work your eight-hour shift, and, you know, people just, they're happy with everything that you do. You're giving them donuts, you're giving them coffee, right, and they're, and they're taking it and going, and you clock in and clock out, right? And then your employer hands you a check. You don't say, oh, thank you so much for counting me worthy of having this. Thank you for giving me this gift. No, if they don't give it to you, right, you hire a lawyer and you go before a judge and the judge says, that's not right. He worked, he earned, therefore hand it over. To the one who works, it's no longer a gift. It's what they're due. But look at what the scriptures say here in verse five. To the one who does not work, the one who does nothing to earn, but instead believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. That is an amazing claim. If you find yourself struggling in the Christian life thinking, does God really love me? Does he really care for me? How does he view me? Because you kind of feel like the last one picked for baseball all the time. You know what I mean? I've had this experience. Hey, let's break into teams, right? It's gym class, and it's like this one, that one, this one, that one, and then you're like, that kid's no good, why don't they pick me, right? And then you're like the last one, and you just kind of feel like, man, you know, I'm on a team because I had to be on a team because there's a gym teacher. If there weren't a gym teacher, they'd have been like, you, go home, right? Rejected. Sometimes Christians think I am so distant from God. He only tolerates me because I pray prayers of repentance. This is the furthest thing from the truth. God does not operate on an economy of what you are owed. Instead, he gladly, joyously, gives righteousness to those who look to him and say, you're going to forgive me of everything I've ever done that's wrong, even the things that I didn't know were wrong that I can't even begin to suspect. You're going to send all those things away and give me righteousness? I will receive it. Thank you. It's not working. We're not owed that. God graciously gives it to us. Paul then quotes David who 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 brings home this idea of of the idea that we're not to boast we're just to believe and to receive what David says is blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered blessed is the man who the Lord will not against whom the Lord will not count his sin sins forgiven the, the, the Greek word can also be used in this place to describe what has been sent away, right? When, when Amazon, okay, I bought tons of stuff on Amazon, thrilled with Amazon, love it, drone delivery, all about it, can't wait. Um, when they sell us something that someone else made that is an inferior product, and I... Message in and say, I want to send this thing back. And they're always like, Yeah, that's cool. You know, they send me a label and then I take it and I package it, hopefully, in one of the other boxes that I've got from Amazon, you know, and I put the label on the outside. I take it to the UPS store and they're like, Boop! And they never charge me. They just send it away. Off it goes. It just vanishes. Ta da! Blessed is the one whose lawless deeds are forgiven. Are they, are they kind of always lurking there, right? You've had a friend like that at some point in your life, right, who, who they're like, yeah, that's cool, but really it's like on their list. And after five or six years of, yeah, that's cool, or after 20 years of, yeah, that's cool, it's finally like the, the, the floodgates open and all the offenses come out, and you did this and this and this and this. And this. And we're just buried in condemnation the way God treats it? No, look at what it says, that their lawless deeds are, their sins are covered. The Lord will not count them against him. Lawless deeds being covered, this is not covered like like we would sweep dirt under the rug, right? And it's still there. No, it's covered like when you go to pay your check and you find out that someone has covered your meal for us. A friend of mine in high school, we were, um, we, were, we were driving up the New Jersey Turnpike. I don't remember where we were going, but one of his relatives was in front of us, and we were doing that uh, thing where, like, you know, we weren't being ridiculous teenagers, but we would, like, try to pass him, and then he would pass us, you know, and so he got to the toll booth first, and we were right behind him. We pulled up to the window, um, you know, to throw our 35 cents into the little, uh, you know, to, to hand it to the guy, not to throw it into the plastic hopper. Um, He said, oh, your toll's been paid. We were like, really? We just drove on through. Nothing required at all. Because someone else had paid it. It was covered. How fortunate. How happy. How privileged is the one to whom the Lord will not count his sin. They have been properly, truly, graciously erased from the record. Now, Remember the Pharisee who is judging the sinful woman. He is in the line of Abraham. He keeps the law of Moses. He is right with God in his opinion because he is living the right way, the way that the people of Abraham live. Many of the Pharisees believed that they were right with God because of their efforts at keeping the law or their connection to Abraham. And they viewed people who strayed and who sinned as as being outside of the covenant, that they had wronged their 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 ethnic descent and they were no longer the people of Abraham they were the good and the pure ones they thought that because of their circumcision that they were better or superior to those who weren't they're superior to the gentiles and that's why he judged her as a sinful woman as less than himself she being a sinner was to be judged and cast out avoided Condemned, not pursued and drawn in. Paul then points out that it is important to realize when Abraham was justified, when did this act Take place? When did this event in in, in in Abraham's life happen? Now we've already said it happens in Genesis chapter 15. But is that before or after he was circumcised? God appears to Abraham and says, I will be a shield to you and a blessing. Walk before me in holiness. And make a covenant with me. And Abraham says, I will. And he says, this is what I want you to do. I want you to circumcise the firstborn son. Uh, I want you to circumcise every son who comes into your family. That's what I want. That's going to be the sign and seal that you are my people. And Abraham says, let's do it. Right? I also often wonder, like, did he just volunteer his entire household? Like, and, and they're all like, wait, what? You know? Um, and so that was a failed attempt at humor. Okay. <laughs> Circumcision jokes, a little awkward here this morning. It's okay. Thank you, Meyer children uh, and and cast for laughing. That's good. Um, Abraham makes this covenant. When does this happen? It happens in Genesis chapter 17. It happens later in life. And this is important because the blessing that is counted to Abraham happens before he is circumcised, before he has done any obedient act before he's made any agreement before he has he has stepped out to say i obeyed you i followed the terms of the agreement the forgiving justifying seeking gracious god justifies abraham before he makes this covenant or obeys god if you look at romans chapter 4 in verse 11 it says that he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. It's a sign of it, not an act that earns it. And so it's important for Christians to remember that God finds us in our sin. Not a one of us was righteous when God began to seek us nothing we did put us on his radar like it was he was like oh that's a good one i'll save them finally some good people to draw into my kingdom while we were yet sinners christ died for us god finds us in our sin and gives grace based on his love and affection for us and on the work of christ not on our obedience and so if you recall or if you review Genesis 1 through 3, you'll find this, that there is a kind of righteousness that results from works of obedience. Paul concludes in chapter 3, his, his argument where he condemns all human beings, he says, by works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight. No one can earn this kind of righteousness except Jesus Christ who lived a perfect life. The second kind of righteousness is the kind that comes by faith where God says this is how I will give it to you and we say I believe that and it flows to us God finds us in our sin and we hear the good news we believe and are declared righteousness righteous and then in verse 12 we see that, that Abraham is the father not just of people who were born into the covenant, the Jews, but to those who are outside of it as well. And that he's, he's father not merely to those who follow a religious tradition and who, who, who follow outwardly, but he's the father of those who walk in the footsteps of the faith that Abraham had before he ever obeyed God. And so Paul points out here in verse 13 that the the promise doesn't come through the law, through obeying, through upholding the standard, but instead it came to him by faith. He was declared righteous because he believed that God would do all that God said that he would do. God made promises to Abraham, and Abraham said, yeah, I believe that he will follow through on that. He will do it. He will keep his word. And God says, that's it. That's what's required. And he gave him righteousness. Not the righteousness of the law, but the righteousness of faith. It's not for those who obey perfectly because that means it's for no one. And that would nullify the example of Abraham. There's a um, a thing that I do when I, I teach the class on uh, Progress or Redemption in Africa, as I work through all of the, the characters in the Old Testament timeline, uh, I'm careful, and a lot of these guys um, who they've, they've grown up in church or around preaching and teaching, and they've heard lots and lots of sermons that go like this. Abraham believed God would be like Abraham. David believed God would be like David. Jacob, trusted God, be like Jacob. They hear a lot of that, like dare to be a Daniel, you know, the type of stuff that, that we teach our kids in Sunday school, like obey God. But here's, here's what they don't understand. They don't look at the lives of these guys and see the heinousness of their sin. And so what I'll do is I'll, I'll, I'll teach on the life of Abraham and I'll point out like five or six different uh, sinful episodes in Abraham's life and I move on to Jacob and I say, like, this guy's a dog, look at him. Messing around with all these women, you know? And by day three, they're like, teacher, teacher, because I'm like killing all their idols, you know, like all the people they're supposed to be imitating because I'm bringing them to the place where there's only one who's righteous, only one. They're like, well, what about David? Not even him. No, you know? Matter of fact, he's pretty bad compared to the other ones, you know? And we get to this place where we talk about how, how, how Jesus' death drives away and cancels out Every sin, anything that that has ever had, that we've ever done, every wrong thought that we've ever had, every present problem that dwells within us, everything we'll do in the future, they're concerned about curses passed down through their lineage from ancestors or things that have, have been, been done to them to bewitch them and all these things. And I say, Jesus negates all of that and they receive it as good news the Old Testament imagination of the Pharisees was that Abraham was this perfect person who obeyed God perfectly, but the account sets it straight. The law is there to point out unrighteousness and all are unrighteous, but in Christ the sting of the law is taken away, which is why Paul says the law brings wrath Please don't judge me according to the law. Judge me according to the righteousness that I have in Christ. Where there is no law, there's no transgression. That's what Paul says. So why faith? Verse 16 points out that faith rests on grace and not on works. For those who know the law and who understand how far short they fall... And this is a condition that I think many long-term Christians find themselves in. They realize that when they started walking with Christ, they had little appreciation of the depth of their sin and how far short they, they fall. And the longer they walk with Christ, the more grace they realize they need. The enormity of their sin the ways in which they continue to struggle and, and mess up and fail, whether it's in their, their marriage or in their, their parenting or in their work life or in their own moral purity, they think, why am I still like this? Why haven't I changed? Why haven't I grown? Why haven't I, why hasn't, why am I not better? And they're still in their mind trying to live up to the standard of the law and to be perfect promise does not rest on our eventual perfection in this life but on grace and because it's based on grace it can be guaranteed to all of Abraham's offspring all those who are part of his family spiritually because we heard the words of God we heard God say believe this we said I believe that it's credited to us as righteousness That is amazingly good news. It means that when we sin and fail grievously, and we come to the Lord and we say, do you still love me? He says, yes. Will you forgive me? Yes. Am I far beyond your reach and unredeemable? No, you are not. One of the truths that we have to come to grips with is, no matter how far we wander from the Lord, when we turn around in repentance, he is right there with us. Now, Paul will talk about holiness and what we are called to, but if we then talk about, yeah, but what about obedience right on top of this? It becomes very easy to get lost in the trap of, but you eventually have to be good, right? You, 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 have, to, you have to live a holy life in order, in order to what? In order to earn it? No, we, we, we shift back in our, our brain over and over again from like, okay, this gift, right? Like I have to express it. I have to express gratitude for it in a way that earns it, right? This is a, a mental trap that we need to just continually come before the Lord with gratitude and thanks, saying, thank you for what you've done. I never deserved it. I don't deserve it right now and I won't ever in the future. Thank you for what you have given to me. How does does faith work? We've established that Abraham believed the promise and was justified apart from his doing. Um, Abraham believed in God's promise despite the obstacles in his path, right? Faith says... I have information from the Lord in his word. I have the precious promises that, that are given. And therefore, I will fight to trust that what God says is true and not lean on my own understanding, as the book of Proverbs says. This is part of the reason why we do a fighter verse every week. So that, so that God's word is active and, and present in our minds so that when doubts creep in, when despair, when we're tempted to, to believe... Lies and to abandon the truth, God's truth is right there with us. Abraham believed God's promises despite the obstacles in his path. He believed and was justified even though he messed up later. Abraham did not waver given what he knew about his life circumstances, right? His wife's womb had been closed for years, and his body, as it says, was as good as dead, and yet he knew that the Lord could bring about what he promised. And so Abraham here is offered to us as an example, not just of uh, or he's, he's offered here not just as a historical record, like God did this for Abraham, right? Because think about it. God promised to Moses, right, that, that if he did something, if he head out, held out his, uh, his staff that the waters would part, that he would deliver Israel. And, and we ought not think, like, that, that if, if, if we just want a quick shortcut across the Chesapeake Bay, right, you know, we don't want to engage the bridge traffic, like, don't claim that promise and go out there and hold out that stick, Right? Don't don't do it. It's not been promised to you. But Paul says this, that the example of Abraham here is, is given not just for his sake alone when it was written in Genesis 15, but it was written for us also so that we would understand... That if we believe that Jesus is raised from the dead and that he was delivered to the cross for our trespasses, right? He went there because of our sin and then he was raised so that we would be justified, then we too will be righteous. That's why it's written for us. And so back to the story. Jesus says, I got something to say to you, Simon. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 days wages and the other owed 50 days' wages. They, they couldn't pay, they both came to him, and he canceled the debt of both. Which one loves him more? We all owe a debt we can't pay, right? The size of that actual debt, does it, does it matter? I think, I think it does matter because we probably all know, we probably all owe more than we know. Simon answers and says, The one, I, I suppose, the one who would love him more is the one for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus says to him, You have judged rightly. Now this, to me, says that, that this is, there's probably, Jesus is a way of answering a question in a way that, that it's, it's loving, but it also reveals a greater, darker truth, maybe. Maybe Simon's failure to acknowledge his own judgmental attitude means he's guilty of the greater... I don't know. Did he understand the enormity of his debt or did he think that he was right with God because he was descended from Abraham and knew the law? Then he turned towards the woman and he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. I came in here. You didn't wash my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time... I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you her sins, which are many, are forgiven for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. She responded to the message of the good news about Jesus with gratitude and humility. Simon, Responded to her and to Jesus with judgment and little compassion. He said to her, your sins are forgiven. This creates outrage around the table. We're not going to go into that. But, but they, 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 they are upset. Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. She believed, and that was all that was required. She believed that, that Jesus was sent from God, and that he was righteous. He had not yet gone to the cross, delivered up for transgressions. He had not yet been raised for our justification, but she believed, and Jesus pronounces, that she is freed. And so let me conclude with two questions as we look out at a world that is lost, at a culture that rejects the very idea of sin and accountability before God, and a culture that rejects the idea that something needs to be atoned for, and then, subsequently, we'll identify what they would call wrong. And they should just use the word sin, and they will condemn and judge others. As we look out at our culture, and we think about the gospel in ourselves, who do we identify ourselves with? Do we view ourselves in the story? Hopefully none of, none of us is like, I identify with Jesus, right? Because No. But I think we naturally all identify with the woman, right? And we think, no, that's That's me. me. That's me. That's definitely me. I'm not Simon. But then when we think of the gospel in ourselves, who do we act like in the world? Do we act like the woman? Or do we act like Simon, smug, self-assured, judging? Or do we move out into the world, humble, grateful, urging and pleading others? to discover the joy that we still experience in being forgiven. The gospel is an amazing blessing to be declared righteous simply for believing. That's amazing. We should never forget that we have not earned it, but we've been given it free of cost. Let's pray. Father, as we come to sing this concluding song, I pray that we would write it on our hearts and minds that we always want to remember the gospel, that we always want to remember this good news that Jesus was delivered and so our transgressions are gone, that he is raised from the dead and therefore we are justified and all we needed to do to access it was to believe. And so we thank you for this incredible, amazing blessing. Father, I pray that you would protect and guard our minds from lowering the standard that you have established because it drives us to pursue a savior. And so I pray for each and every person in this room, for those who might be thinking I am outside of God's grace because I have not believed what he's said about Jesus. I pray that they would simply put their faith and trust in you and know that you will accomplish what you promised. And for each and every person, Lord, who is a believer, who struggles with condemnation, I pray that you would help them to build their foundation on this truth, that nothing that we have from you comes because it has been earned. It has all been given as a gracious gift, and therefore we cannot ruin it. We pray that we would walk in humility and grace and joy and share with those who need to hear, Lord, for your glory, And for our joy we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing this closing song together.